I got a haircut this week uh, at my salon, and so what do you think? What do you like it? It's pretty good. I, uh, every time I get a haircut, I notice one or two more little gray hairs on the side, and so uh, don't be surprised if next month I have a much darker, you know, mane, like I've uh, uh, done the whole coloring thing, um, but it is, can be a little depressing in your 30s to see what happens to you. I have, uh, since the very uh, beginning of my time in Houston, I've gone to the same salon uh, in Montrose. I found a guy there that uh, is always on time and, and gets me in and out in 20 minutes and costs less than $40, and that's all I ask for <laughs> in a salon, and so I've been going back to him ever since. And uh, we've kind of gotten to know each other over time, but it took a long time for us to really break through and get to know each other uh, because uh, one of the first things he learned about me was I'm a, I'm a pastor. And, uh, and he wasn't real keen to the idea of opening up and becoming friends with a pastor. because He's not real sure he believes in God. He was raised religious. He was raised Catholic. But he's felt a little bit uh, disappointed by organized religion, a little bit judged by religious people. Do you all know anybody like that? Okay, just a few, right? That's, that's, that's his story. And, uh, and so over time, uh, you know, I've, I, I started by trying to make small talk. It's part of what I do in my job. I make conversation with people. And so I would ask him things about his life. You know, are you seeing anybody? Are you dating anyone? And he'd always kind of sheepishly say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not seeing anybody. I'm, I'm enjoying being single or whatever. And I knew he was lying, but he just didn't want to tell me. Um, and so and finally, after a while, you know, of hearing me every time come in and ask him, are you seeing anybody? Are you seeing anybody? Finally, uh, he said, you know, uh, Eric, there's something about me I've been meaning to tell you. And, you know, I, I haven't told you this because you're a priest. I really don't want to lose your business. Um, but, but I'm, um, I'm, and I said, man, I, I know what you are. <laughs> And he said, you've known? I said, I've known since I met you. Said, How'd you know? I said, you're a hairstylist in Montrose. <laughs> and you wax your eyebrows. <laughs> I was on to you. I'm pretty perceptive. And he said, I didn't think you knew. And I said, hey, by the way, I'm a pastor, man. And he said, I know. That's why I haven't told you till now. I said, no, 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 I, you don't understand. I'm not upset at you because you're gay. I'm upset at you because you called me a priest earlier. And like, <laughs> we can be friends if you're gay. We can't be friends if you're calling me a priest. That's, that's where I draw my line in the sand, you know? But ever since that time, he started opening up more to me, and, and we've become friends, uh, frankly. And I look forward to going, getting a haircut, and catching up. And I've learned over time that a few years back, his father was murdered in cold blood, and uh, I've learned that not only has he felt uh, judged by religious people, he's been willfully hurt by religious people. I've learned more about his you know, private life, his dating life. I've learned things one cannot unlearn uh, about his dating life. And, uh, you know, I guess I've been married and off the market too long. I have not been in touch with what's going on on the dating scene right now. Singles, I am praying for y'all. Straight, gay alike. I pray for all of y'all every day because... Uh, the dating apps, he told me all the pros and cons of all the different dating apps. He told me all the kinds of intimate messages he gets from people he doesn't even know. He told me all about, you know, uh, uh, the, the relationships he's been in 
lately, uh, the hookup culture, uh, his last two relationships, the guys have wanted open relationships and not commitment. He says it's so hard to find someone to commit, to, who wants to really have a serious relationship. And I think that's something a lot of single people uh, share and that feeling, you know. And, and he told me a lot more stuff that I can't tell you or I'll, I'll get fired um, from, from being a preacher if I tell you that in church. But do you ever find yourself in a position where, like I was in, in the last couple of weeks, the last couple of times I've, I've gone to him, you know, I, I've, he's told me things that he does and gets into that, that Christians probably shouldn't condone, you know, the open relationship things and the swinging thing. And he's not talking about a playground. I wish he was, but he's not. And it's, uh, it's you know, it's, it's something that every Christian has to make a choice in that moment, in the heat of that moment. You ever face that choice? Like, do I laugh and kind of sweep it under the rug and be cool? Or do I judge and just never come back? I mean, what, what would a good, respectable Christian do? What would a pastor do? You know, that's, that's the question that's been on my mind a lot um, lately. Do I keep going back and paying him, uh, even though I know, you know, the way that, that he's living as, as a single guy and all that stuff? Am I condoning his behavior? Wouldn't any self-respecting preacher find a good Christian hairstylist in Pearland somewhere with a little Jesus fish on her mirror and K-Love on the radio? I sat there asking myself these questions this week as I sat in his chair and listened to Miley Cyrus belting out wrecking ball and him telling me about his latest, you know, flings or whatever. And, and, uh, and I had all these thoughts running through my head. What is the Christian response? What's the pastor's response? I ask myself all the time, what would a good pastor do? WWJD, you know, what would Joel do? I ask myself all the time, all the time. That's what that means, right? I thought that's what that means. Anyway, uh, so I did, in the heat of that moment, what I believed any uh, true, born-again, Bible-believing, spirit-filled, Jesus-freak, like me could do, the only conceivable thing someone in my position could do. And I took out my wallet. I reached for a piece of paper inside my wallet. And on this piece of paper, it had some very clear instructions, step-by-step -step instructions on what I believed he should do next with his life. I believed that these instructions would lead him to a place of total freedom and paradise, total happiness and joy. And on that paper were very clear directions for how to get to the Heights Bingo Hall on February 29th for our barn dance. Now, um, you, might, you might be wondering to yourself, why would a pastor go out of his way to invite someone who's self-avowed atheist, angry at religion, maybe living in a way that is not conducive to the, whatever Christianity you know, should look like, someone who doesn't have a problem with promiscuity and things like that? Why would you invite someone like that to a church-sanctioned party? With this series, The End, we've been talking about putting an end to the chapter of life. You've been living and starting a new chapter. And the importance of um, doing that in that order and not trying to start a new chapter before you put an end to the old chapter. And I've, I've borne witness in my ministry to the common mistakes people make. One of the most common mistakes Christians make is forgetting that we're no better than anyone else. Forgetting that we're broken and a mess just like anyone else. And the most common mistake everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, makes is making the same mistake over and over again. Uh, does anyone here ever do that? You ever, can you look back on your life and, and analyze how the same problem, the same tendency and mistake keeps coming up again and again and again? No matter how much you think you've grown, you find yourself back in the same place, fighting the same battles again and again. And you're like, what was I thinking? What? 
what is wrong with me? You know, those repeated mistakes. So last week we talked about Joseph and the betrayal of his brothers, and that's going to bring us into today's conversation, which takes place 30 years after Joseph and his brothers arrived in Egypt. And uh, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 1. So we've been in Genesis. We're moving to Exodus. If you want to turn in your Bibles, that'd be great. Exodus chapter 1. Uh, we'll start in verse 8. If you don't have your Bible or you just don't feel like getting it out, that's okay too. Uh, we'll start uh, in verse 8 on your study guides and on the screens. So here we go. 30 years after what happened last week. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Hebrew people are more numerous and more powerful than we Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them and force, with forced labor. They built the supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Hebrews. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. So here we have uh, just one more installment in the ongoing saga of the Hebrew people, which uh, seems to play out like this. There's a cycle of uh, goodness and closeness to God, followed by the people replacing God with man-made things like religion um, and rules and government and trusting those things. And then there's this period of suffering and oppression. And then during that time, the people learn to cry out to God again and put God back where God belongs. And then God rescues them from their suffering and oppression and brings them back to a place of comfort. Start the cycle over again. The same thing is happening here in Egypt with the descendants of Joseph. They have become comfortable living under the regime, the, the, the government of Egypt. They placed all their hopes and dreams on the safety and security of Egypt, these Hebrew people. So to learn uh, really what this cycle means and why, uh, why it matters, we have to know where that word Hebrew comes from. The word Hebrew, which is used to describe the Israelites throughout the Old Testament, is not a religious word at all. It's not a Hebrew word uh, in terms of the Hebrew language. It has no religious significance. It comes from an ancient Mediterranean word called apiru. And the apiru uh, were mentioned, they were a group of people that were mentioned in several uh, ancient Mediterranean documents, not just the Bible. And the apiru were not an ethnic group. They were not a religious group. They weren't even the same people. But all the haves of society, the people that wrote the history books, would lump all of the homeless wanderers out in the desert with no home and no uh, city to call their own. They'd lump all those people together and call them the Apiru. It was kind of a slur. It was a way to denigrate those people and, and categorize them as one group of people. And so these were the wanderers, the sojourners, the homeless, kind of, uh, you get the, the Bedouin types of people. And so that fits biblically because in the Old Testament, the people of God, the Israelites, are described as wanderers. Abraham is described as a sojourner uh, in the Old and New Testaments. His descendants did the same thing. They just wandered around, depended on God wherever they went. And so uh, when Abraham's descendants go to Egypt, the Egyptians translate Apiru as Habiru in Egyptian, which gives us the word Hebrew. And, uh, and I sound a little bit like the father from my big fat Greek wedding right now. But, uh, but that's, that's, what, that's what the word Hebrew means. It was a description of people who had no government. People who had no home. 
just wandered in the wilderness. And so we have this cycle from wilderness into deliverance, uh, comfort, and that comfort leads to complacency. The complacency leads them back into the wilderness. So that's the cycle in the Old Testament, and they make the same mistake over and over again. Whenever they get comfortable, they get complacent, and they replace God with the stuff of men. So they replace God with religion. They replace God with government. They replace God with kings and kingdoms, and they get comfortable. The same thing happens here in Egypt. I think they wandered for years in the wilderness. They get to Egypt, and finally, life gets easier. They get comfortable. They get jobs. They get cable, and they settle in, you know? And God matters a little bit less when you've got, you know, Egyptian idol on every Thursday night or whatever. You know, God matters a little bit less when life is a little more comfortable. And that's where we mess up. That's where the people of uh, the Old Testament messed up. Happened again and again. If you look at the, the, the trajectory of the Old Testament, the very beginning of the Old Testament, God says, you know what, you guys, you guys, I'm going to give you a garden, and it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be you and me, and we're going to get, a, it was just going to be great. And the people are like, that's great. We love gardens. Thank you for this garden, God. But you know, we're, we're going to do whatever we want. And we're going to eat whatever we want. And God's like, that's not really how this situation should work. But hey, you can't stay in the garden, but I'll go with you into the wilderness. And it's just going to be you guys and me, and we're going to make it. We're going to be okay. And they're like, thank you for the company, God. The Hebrew people are like, you know, what other people do for their gods is they build their gods' houses. And we're going to put you in a box, God, and, and, and you're going to have a home. And God's like, I don't really need a home. I don't, I'm good. The earth, the universe, the creation is my home. I don't need a house. And they're like, no, 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 no. We got this. We're going to build you a house. And then, and then God says, you know, uh, I, I think what you guys need is some land. I'm going to give you some land all your own. And it's going to be great. It's going to be you and me. And we're going to figure this out. And they say, thank you, God. Thank you for this land. We like land. But you know what we really need? We need a kingdom and a king. We need a government. Like all the other people have governments. We want what other people have, God. God's like, that's not really how this works. But hey, we'll manage. I'll give you some guideposts, some rules along the way. All you really need to know is that you just got to love me and you got to love each other and you'll be good. And the people are like, that's cool. We, we like love. We can love each other. But what we really want is religion. What we really want is a bunch of men in robes telling us that we're not good enough, reminding us that we haven't given enough or worshiped enough or done enough for God to love us. That's what we really want is religion. And somewhere in heaven, God just face palms himself and it's like, oh, again, again. And they tell themselves two great lies, the Hebrew people over and over. These are the two great lies. The first great lie is that I can believe in God <clears throat> And I can still be in control of my life. I can believe in God. I'll still be in control of my life. The second great lie is I can worship God and still be like everybody else. And this lie leads them to make the same. These lies lead them to make the same mistakes over and over again. The two great lies. What's really scary, what's really interesting for me as I prepared this message, is thinking back on all the ways that I've used the same two great lies. These lies are timeless, man. They're straight from the mouth of the, of the devil, but we still believe them as much as the Hebrew people did in the Old Testament times. I can believe in God and still be in control of my life. I can worship God and still be normal, mainstream, cool, like everybody else. So 
My contention is that we do the same thing, whether or not you want to be honest with me today or whether you want to keep your church mask on, that's okay too, but I just want to tell you, from what I've seen, most of us still succumb to these two great lies. So most of us, not all of us, but most of us would say probably that we're Christians. And I'm proud that the story also has a lot of people here who, who aren't sure about being Christians yet. You just come with your questions, that's awesome. Welcome, and we hope you come back. But right now I want to talk to the Christians, people that say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, it's pretty clear from the New Testament what Christians are supposed to do. We're supposed to surrender our whole lives to Jesus, right? We're supposed to give it all to Jesus. How many of us can honestly say that for all our good intentions, we've ever figured out a way to give Jesus all we have? I thought about talking about money at this point in the sermon, but I don't want y'all to hate me, and I want you to come back to church. So let's just let's talk about time. That's a little bit easier of a subject. How many of you have decided that every moment of your life is going to be to glorify Jesus? Because I believe that Christians should glorify God with their whole lives. I believe I, as a pastor, as a Christian, should glorify God with my whole life. Have I ever done that? No. I believe it, but I don't live it. I believe it. I don't drive like it. I believe it. I don't act like it. You know, I don't parent like it. I'm not a I'm not a good representative sometimes of the glory of God, even though I believe Christians should always reflect the glory of God and give Jesus all of our time. Most of us have made an alternative contract with Jesus. Most of us have said, you know, Jesus, I know you really want all of my time, but I got this job, I got this family, I got this girlfriend, whatever. And so I can, you know, pencil you in Sunday at 11. We good? That good with you? You know, and we kind of give Jesus an hour instead of thinking about, that our time uh, more holistically in giving Jesus all of what we have. We tell ourselves the same lies. And then we're surprised when things fall apart. And then we're surprised when our lives don't turn out the way we thought they should. And then I get phone calls, Pastor, I just can't believe this happened. Pastor, I don't know what I was thinking. Pastor, I, I can't believe... You know, my family's falling apart. I can't believe I did what I did. And what do we do? When your life is falling apart, almost without fail, we get on our knees again. We get back into that wilderness mentality. Oh, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, if you will just get me out of this mess I made, Lord Jesus, my life will never be the same. Lord Jesus, if you will just deliver me from this mess I've made. God, I know I did not study for that test, but if you could just pass this test for me, Lord Jesus. I know, I know I should not have done what I did, Lord, but if you could just erase that part of my past for me, Lord Jesus, I will always be yours. My life will never be the same again. We will be so tight, God, you will not believe how much I will love you if you get me out of this mess. I'm in, Lord Jesus. And then almost without fail, Jesus delivers us from whatever problem we were in. And we get comfortable again. We get complacent. We get jobs. We get cable. We settle in and we... We forget how good God was to us when our life was falling apart. We're back to the way we were. The Apostle Paul explains this phenomenon in an incredible part of his letter to the Romans, chapter 7. This is what he said. Just listen to this. The Apostle Paul said, I don't understand my actions, for I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my body. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you ever experience this incongruence in your life? This believing one thing and doing another? We believe in all this good stuff. But then we do all this stuff that doesn't have anything to do with what we believe. I'm the worst at this. I mean, I have tried so many ways of superficially changing the things about myself that I don't like. Right? Instead of really getting to the heart of the matter and working from this center of my beliefs, I try to tinker with the outside of myself and, and, and change myself from the outside in. And it never works. One of the things I believe, I believe in my heart, that God created us intentionally in his image. God gave us these bodies. And it's our duty as Christians to take care of these bodies. I believe that with all of my being. I believe God gave me this body and said, take care of it, steward it. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit, this body. I believe it. I don't eat like I believe it. I don't exercise like I believe it. But I believe it in my heart, and that's what matters, right? I wish that's what mattered. I've got a pantry full of evidence of my belief gone awry, right? So I looked through my pantry this morning, and it was indicting, to say the least. I went through a phase where I gave up potato chips because I believe, I believe that my body is a gift from God to be stewarded. So I gave up potato chips, and I bought this bag of veggie sticks six months ago. Long expired bag of veggie sticks that I forgot to even have because I've gone back to my uh, sour cream and onion Lay's potato chips. Can I get an amen? I've gone back to my spicy nacho cheese Doritos. Hallelujah. And I forgot all about my veggie straws. But I believe. I still believe. I didn't stop believing. I just, I didn't follow through. I didn't act like I Believed it. At one point, somebody told me that, that if you eat quinoa, while eating quinoa, you burn more calories than quinoa has, right? So you lose weight while eating quinoa. This box remains unopened. <laughs> and I bought it months ago. I was going to give up coffee. Somebody told me coffee is bad for me, and this is the box of tea I bought when I was going to give up coffee, and it's also unopened. If I want some uh, Tazo uh, Awake English breakfast tea, you're welcome to this. Uh, I, my wife might fight you for it. I was going to give up sugar. I bought this thing, Splenda, seriously three years ago. And it continues to be unused Splenda, full of Splenda on the inside. I bought this $15 bag of pine nuts because somebody told me pine nuts are a superfood. And this is, you know, it cleans your arteries or something. And uh, I spilled most of them on the stage during the first service. And uh, so the stage is all oily now. I can do the twist up here. Worthless, worthless, worthless. 
Then I went to my closet. My closet is full of indicting evidence that my life doesn't reflect my beliefs. I believe God created me to take care of this body, and so I know I should exercise. A while ago, I was blaming my wife for not giving me time to exercise. I said, you always want so much time with me. You don't give me time to exercise. So she said, well, just go exercise. And I said, I need a gym membership. And she said, I bought you four gym memberships. You've never used them. And so just there's a treadmill right there. Just go run. I said, I need some shoes. I need good running shoes to get in shape. And she bought me these running shoes. You know how many times I've used them to run on a treadmill or to run anywhere for that matter? You can count it on less than one hand. The number is zero. I, I hate to run. It's not that I really want to run. I just want an excuse not to run. She bought me an excuse to run. So... Then I bought this thing, whatever this is, $150 of Jesus' money spent on this, whatever this is. I haven't used it in two years. I don't even have the right doors that fit this thing. You're supposed to put it on your door thresholds, and I don't even, I haven't used it in two, it's worthless. You know, I don't even know why I bought it, but, but uh, you know, I had to buy it, I had to have it. I told myself then, if I just had this equipment, then I would start exercising. You think it worked? No, it did not work. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Because you can't change yourself from the outside in. You can't change yourself just because you believe the right things. And that is uh, true not only when it comes to your diet and exercise, it's true when it comes to your relationships, the patterns you get in, the kinds of people you date. Oh, Lord, I know I'm speaking some truth, but I hope you don't hate me for this. But, you know, the people that you date and the patterns you have in your dating life uh, can be uh, the same, can reflect the same kind of incongruence, the, the same kinds of things uh, in, uh, in, in your uh, addictions, your secret addictions, your secret life that nobody knows about, the same kinds of incongruence in your bad financial decisions, that financial opportunity you had that was a once-in-a-lifetime, too good to be true, and... As it turns out, it really was too good to be true. Or the ways that you spend your money impulsively, these kinds of patterns continue to repeat themselves. And you look back on your life. I look back at all this stuff in my life, and I'm like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? You ever look back on something in your life and go, what was I thinking? Paul would say that's the perfect question to ask. What was I thinking? Because it's not about feeling being transformed is not about believing. It's about thinking. And here's what I mean. This is from Romans chapter 12. This is later in the same letter. Romans chapter 12. This is Paul again, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God? Here, here is some truth for us, you guys. Because no matter what you believe, no matter what you feel, as long as you keep thinking the same things, you're going to keep doing the same things. No matter what kind of conversion experience you feel at church, as long as your mind works the same way, your life's going to look the same way. There will be no change in your life until you allow the Holy Spirit to renew your minds and to bring transformation, not just to your heart and soul and your feelings and emotions, but to your mind. This is why we continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. We think it's all about our hearts and what we feel. We fail 
to realize that the transformation the Holy Spirit wants to work in us is with our thought processes. And the problem with this is that it doesn't happen overnight for us. And we're such an impulsive, uh, instant gratification culture that if it's not Jimmy John's freaky fast delivery, like we're done with it. Like when the emotion wears off, we move on. I have, I have uh, walked with many new believers who have had emotional experiences at church. They've decided to give their lives to Jesus. Maybe they've gotten baptized and, you know, they feel like it's time to turn it all around. But when it doesn't happen overnight, when they go back to work or go back to their relationship and they see the same temptations and they're tempted in the same ways to go back to the way that they were, they wonder, did it really take? Did I do it right? Does God really want me? Is this even real? And many times they give up because transformation takes time. Transformation takes time. Sometimes we're too impatient. It's what I call the church camp effect. Anybody ever go to church camp as a youth when you were a teenager, right? Everybody accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior at the last night of church camp. Everybody goes to the foot of the cross, weeping tears of just repentance and saying, it's all going to be different now. Lord Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, and I promise I'm not going to make out with people anymore, even though I've been making out all week at church camp. (laughs) Starting now, starting now, it's all going to be different. They go home, tell all their friends and parents and everybody that they're Christians now. Everything's going to be different. They make their mom and dad take them to the James Avery store and get a purity ring, and it's all going to be different. They go back to school, and they find the same temptations are there as they were last year, and their reactions to those temptations aren't much different as they were last year because they had an emotional, enthusiastic experience with Jesus on the mountain or wherever they went to church camp, but when they came back down from that, This was real. I'm not saying have your emotional experience with Jesus. You can trust your emotions with Jesus, but you got to know it's not just about your emotions. Once you have that emotional experience, you've got to fill in the rest of your life with discipline, with patience, you you know, with, with surrender. Even when you don't feel like getting on your knees, getting on your knees and seeking God because Being transformed is not just about what's going on in your heart. It's about what's happening in your mind. And that kind of renewal takes commitment. It takes time. That, I believe, is what the church is here for. That's why the church exists. You see, I think we've gotten it all wrong. I think we've got it twisted what the church is for. I think many of us, even though you might not admit it, most of us assume the church exists for people who are already post-transformation. The church exists for people who already have it figured out, people who look like they've got their lives together, people who do have their lives together. That's who goes to church. Well-adjusted, red-blooded family people, you know. And we could not be more wrong about that. The Gospels are clear. Jesus did not come for people who already think they're okay, who already think they're transformed. Jesus came for people who desire transformation, who seek renewal, who long to start a new chapter. Jesus comes for screw-ups and mess-ups, people that are deep in their own messes, people that don't see a way out. Jesus comes for broken people, people like me and my hairstylist. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world does a Christian pastor, church planter, have in common with an atheist, you know, hairstylist in Montrose? 
And my answer to that is very simple. It's based on the gospel. Very simple. Two things. First of all, we're both broken sinners. Neither one of us any better than the other. And secondly, we're both invited to the party by Jesus. Jesus invites us both to his party. That's why I extended the invitation that I did. That's why I hope all of you find ways of extending invitations to the people in your lives that fit the same description. Real quick, I got three things I want to tell you before we go home. Three things I hope you will remember from today. First of all, God created you for glory. God created you for glory. The reason I wanted to say this specifically today is because when we repeat the same mistake over and over, every time you repeat it, this becomes less believable. This becomes less credible. Every time you make the same stupid mistake, the same bad choice, you become more inclined to say that uh, God wanted you or loved you more before you made the mistake than after. And that's heresy. That could not be more false. According to the gospel of Jesus who says Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, this proves God's love toward us. God doesn't need some perfect version of you to love you. God loves the way you are right now and who you are right now. He's not going to leave you that way, but he loves you. And you were created for glory. I know it's hard to believe when you go home and look at the mirror, but you are a majestic creature. The Bible says that humanity is a crown jewel of creation. That God created everything else first and said it's not quite good enough. And then God made us in his image. Now, most of us, when you go home and look in the mirror, and especially if it's one of those full-length body mirrors, you look at that. And I doubt anyone here looks up and down in that mirror and goes, there it is. It's the crown jewel of God's creation. <laughs> crown jewel of the universe right here in front of me. I doubt anyone here says, if you do, we can't be friends. But <laughs> some of you might, I don't know. Most of us see flaws. Most of us see wrinkles. Most of us see stretch marks. Most of us see a, little, a few extra pounds. We see the things we think other people have and we don't. And I want to tell you that your tendency, our shared tendency to see flaws before beauty is further proof of our need for renewal and transformation. Because our repeated mistakes have so convinced us, the lies the devil told us have so convinced us that we're not worthy of God's love, we need to be reminded we were created for glory. Second thing I want to tell you is that God uses your mistakes to bring victory. God works in failure to bring victory. Romans 8 says God works in every situation, in your worst moment, every time you've suffered. The Bible doesn't say God gave you that suffering or made you suffer. It says God was with you in the suffering, hatching a plan of salvation within that dark moment that would bring victory to you and to God later. So if you're in that dark moment now, you need to know that God and his angels are working on a plan, not just to get you out of that situation, but to use it for his glory later. And whatever failure, whatever mistakes you think have marred your life actually will be like the scars Jesus bore when he emerged from the tomb, signs of victory and all that God can overcome. Third, doing something different requires thinking something different. Doing something different requires thinking something different. This is so important because it's not just about feeling something different, believing something different. It truly is about thinking something different, and we all want to be different. And transformation comes when we learn to think 
in the right way. I don't really know how it happens, but I've seen it so many times as a pastor to know it cannot be denied that when someone lets the Holy Spirit work on them for any length of time, when they surrender their lives to Jesus, even when the emotions have worn off, something changes in your mind. And it's inexplicable and wonderful how that circuitry of your brain can change such that, for example, men, the Holy Spirit works on you over time. Those women you used to objectify and think about using, you start to look at them like sisters, like daughters. And it's weird and you wonder, who was that guy that used to take advantage of my sisters and daughters? You know, when you when the Holy Spirit transforms you, the stuff that you used to spend your money on, it seems so foolish, and you realize that God gives you this money to be a resource to help those who have less than you do know that there is hope. When the Spirit of God works and transforms you, the stuff you used to spend your time on, sports and fantasy sports and the Tinder app and all the things you do to waste time, it becomes less and less tempting. It becomes more and more difficult to waste time because you understand time is a gift from God. And, and you, all you want is to learn more. All you want is to grow more. You have this insatiable desire for more of God. And you seek out Bible studies and you seek out worship. And church isn't a chore anymore because you can't get enough of the presence of God. When the Holy Spirit transforms you by the renewing of your mind. And the first thing you realize when your mind is transformed, is that this life matters. The life you're living right now, it matters. And the lies you've been told, the lies you believed are straight from your enemy. And the life you're living now is precious to God and it's time to do something different. The truth is you can't believe in God and still have control over your life. The truth is you can't worship God and still just be like everybody else. God's going to call you to be different. And you, you've tried all of that and you've made the same mistakes. So why not let today be the day that you surrender to what God has wanted to do with you all along? Don't let today pass without saying yes to something different from what you've been doing. Try letting the Holy Spirit change your thinking. You will never, I promise you will never look at the mirror the same way again. You'll never look at your life the same way again. You will find yourself doing the craziest things like inviting random atheists in Montrose to barn dances that your church is putting on. You'll find yourself stepping out of comfort zones when you let the Spirit renew your mind. My prayer as your friend, as your pastor, is that you'll do something different by thinking something different today. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy for loving us. Even when we thought ourselves to be unlovable, for accepting us and inviting us to your party, to your banquet, to communion with you. Thank you and we pray in your precious name. Amen.